0: Hi folks, thanks for being with us today for our webcast. We are gonna let our audience settle in for just a minute or two and we'll start the presentation shortly. Thank you. Again, we thank you for joining us. Folks, we're going to let our audience members get settled in here for just a few more seconds, and we'll get started with the presentation shortly. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast, Eight Hascom Mistakes You May Be Making and How to Fix Them, sponsored by J.J. Keller. My name is Barry Botino, and I'm an Associate Editor at Safety and Health. I'll be moderating today's event. We'd like to thank you all for joining us today. Before we get started, I have a few housekeeping items to share with you. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speakers and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a QA and a with our speakers. If you have a question, just click on that Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type in your question, and press the send button. You don't have to wait for the Q and A begin to send a question. We welcome your questions at any time at all during today's event. After this presentation, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, but I'll tell you more about that a little bit later. This webcast will be archived so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events or you'll also receive a link in our post-event email. With that, let's introduce our presenters. With us today are Rachel Krupsack and Derek Plowden, who both serve as EHS editors at JJ Keller. Rachel writes a monthly newsletter on OSHA safety training, answers subscriber questions, and contributes content for numerous products and services. Her expertise includes hazard communication, hearing conservation, training requirements, bloodborne pathogens, and emergency action plans. Derek writes the monthly Has Safety Training Advisor newsletter. He responds to customer questions and contributes content to multiple publications. His expertise includes construction regulations, hazard communication, ergonomics, PPE, and injury and illness record keeping. Again, we thank you all for tuning into this presentation today. And Rachel, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away.
1: Okay, thank you, Barry. So today's webcast is sponsored by the JJ Keller Hascom Chemical Safety Management Service. With this service, you can get help from JJ Keller experts to manage your chemical inventory and SDS library, ensure proper labeling and save you a lot of time, and give you confidence that it's done right and you're in compliance. This service provides support and guidance for those core areas of your HazCom program. On behalf of the JJ Keller HazCom Chemical Management Service, welcome to today's webcast. Today we'll be looking at OSHA's Hazcom Hazard Communication Program and we'll start with a broad overview. What are the basic elements of the program? Who is covered and what exceptions apply? And then we'll look closely at what OSHA is citing employers for. So in other words, what they're getting wrong under HASCOM and how often OSHA cites this program may surprise you. And of course, as promised, we'll look at eight mistakes you may be making under HASCOM and show you some ways to go about fixing those issues. But first, we'd like to know a little bit more about you and why you're joining us today. So what issues do you struggle with? What are your biggest challenges with HASCOM? And you can choose more than one answer such as keeping track of chemicals, maintaining safety data sheets, understanding the requirements, proper labeling, or maybe there's something else that you are struggling with. Okay, it's looking like the majority of you say that understanding the requirements is your number one challenge, followed by keeping track of chemicals and proper labeling, which are tied at number two, maintaining STSs, and then other. So hopefully we can help you out with some of those things today. All right, so let's get started. A transit system in Connecticut was cited by OSHA for HAZCOM violations for failing to inform and train bus drivers on the hazards of a powerful disinfectant spray being used to disinfect buses due to COVID-19. So the use of this particular disinfectant and its hazards were new to the company. According to the complaints made by the Drivers Union to OSHA, the disinfectants were being used so often they didn't even drive before the bus would go out again. Drivers exposed to the chemical had difficulty focusing, experienced rashes, breathing issues, headaches, and eye irritation. That means that even if training on the chemical hazards and protective measures was provided, it was likely not effective. All Hascom training must be effective. Of course, the employer may contest the citation and penalty, but this violation shows you the kind of thing Hascom is designed to prevent. Employees not being sufficiently trained so that they know how to properly use chemicals. It also shows you where an employer was really trying to do the right thing, disinfect commonly touched surfaces to protect drivers and the public from COVID-19, but forgot about the HAZCOM requirements that apply to hazardous chemicals. Today we'll stick with the terms HAZCOM or hazard communication standard, but this program is also often referred to as HCS or sometimes GHS. In 2012, the HazCom standard was aligned with the United Nations Globally Harmonized System of Classification and Labeling of Chemicals, or GHS for short. The revised standard uses harmonized hazard classifications found in not the latest, which is the ninth edition, but the older third edition of the GHS, and uses a standardized label and safety data sheet, or STS, formats and elements called for in GHS. So before we go any farther, I'm sure you're wondering which mistakes we'll be focusing on today. Here's the list on this slide. And as you can see, it runs the gamut across the Hascom program. These mistakes are sprinkled throughout our webcast. So here's where you can find them all in one place. And with that, I will turn it over to Derek.
2: Thanks, Rachel. Let's go through a few definitions. Um, just look at the ones on your slide here today. These are three that we'll call out. <clears throat> and within the standard, there are many definitions. Now we won't go through all of those today. Of course, I don't know how engaging of a webcast that would be if we went through definitions, but three of the main ones we wanted to point out are here on the slide. Now remember, we'll likely call these out today. We don't expect that you know them or that you memorize them by heart, but it's always good to have these as a reference as we go through today's slides. Now, the HASCOM standard applies to any employer who has employees that will be exposed to a hazardous chemical on the job. It applies to general industry. Yes, even some of you shipyard folks, if you're out there, uh, marine terminals, long shoring and construction employment. And of course, covers chemical manufacturers and importers, as well as employers and employees who are exposed to chemical hazards. Now, any employer in these industries I just described with one employee and one hazardous chemical is covered. Of course, that HASCOM standard covers any chemical within your facility that's known to be present in the workplace such a manner that employees might be exposed under normal conditions of use or in the foreseeable emergency. Most chemicals used in the workplace have some hazard potential and thus will be covered by the rules unless they're exempted. A hazard chemical is not hazardous and not covered by the standard. And if there is no potential for occupational exposure, then the chemical is not covered by the standard. So. There are several exemptions to the standard, uh, which we'll go through today. Here are the first few of them, and we've not listed them all for the most part. If another regulation or statute covers a substance such as hazardous waste under RCRA, then OSHA has listed them in 1910.1200 paragraph B6, and HASCOM does not apply. So for instance, Hazard communication will not apply to articles which are defined as a manufactured item that is not a fluid or that is a particle that has a function that is going to be dependent on its shape or design. And it does not release more than a very small amount of hazardous chemical under normal conditions of use. And it does not pose a physical hazard or health risk to employees. Now consumer products are exempted. And when we say consumer products, we mean products Uh, that you might use every day, like cleaners, like, um, uh, you know, window wipers, uh, window washers, uh, anything like that. Um, I know Windex is a good one, an antiseptic wipe to clean off office desks, uh, anything like that. Those products are exempted, of course, unless maybe let's say you're janitorial and you handle those chemicals and products all day, every day as part of, uh, you know, your work, then you might be covered under the standard. Again, that's depending on your exposure. Now there are two types of work operations where coverage of the rule is limited, but not entirely eliminated. The first is laboratories and the second is operations where chemicals are only handled in sealed containers. Now the requirements for these operations is to keep the labels on the incoming container that are received, maintain safety data sheets that accompany the shipments, and then of course allow employees to access them and provide information and training for employees. Now labs that ship hazardous containers have other requirements, the real exception here is that you do not have to have a written hazard communication program or even, let's say, a list of chemicals. However, labs will still need to keep a chemical hygiene plan.
1: Okay, so here's HazCom boiled down into its basic components. And note that today we're only talking about HazCom as it applies to employers, not to chemical manufacturers or distributors of hazardous chemicals. They do have additional requirements, including evaluating and classifying chemicals as to their hazards, creating SDSs and labeling shipping containers with detailed information as described in the standard. Employers who have employees exposed to hazardous chemicals must identify and list hazardous chemicals in their workplaces. This is that um, chemical inventory that you have to create and maintain. Implementing a written HazCom program, which includes provisions for proper container labeling, SDSs and employee training. Maintaining your safety data sheets or SDSs for each hazardous chemical and ensure labeling on those incoming containers. And finally, communicating hazard information to employees through proper labels, SDSs and formal training programs. So these are the numbers from 2021, where three of the top 10 serious violations were related to HazCom. And you can see here that missing or inadequate Hascom written program was the number three serious violation for general industry at 568 citations. Next is missing or inadequate measures to provide hazard information to employees or provide proper training at 515 citations. And finally, the failure to make SDSs readily accessible came in at 211 violations. So this shows that there are many areas in Hascom where OSHA will definitely take a look at your program for compliance. And breaking out it out a little further here, these are OSHA's top serious violations covering only 1910 subpart Z, which is sections 1910-1000 through 1910-1450, and HASCOM, of course, is 1910-1200. So here we see the top three from the last slide, plus the addition of not having an SDS available for each hazardous chemical, and for non-GHS style in-house labels, not providing both the product identifier and general hazard information on the label.
2: And that really takes us to mistake number one, which is not writing and maintaining a written hazard communication program. If you look up OSHA's citations for 1910.1200, within paragraph E1, you'll see that the citation says the employer did not develop, they didn't implement or maintain at the workplace a written hazard communication program, which has to describe how the criteria specified in 1910.1200 paragraphs F, G, and H will be met. Now, I mentioned paragraphs F, G and H. Paragraph F covers the labeling requirements while paragraph G covers the safety data sheets and paragraph F, H contains the requirements for informing employees and in employee training. Now this requirement applies to all employers that have one or more employees who may be exposed to hazardous chemicals in the workplace under normal conditions of use or in the foreseeable emergency. And that's something that I had mentioned earlier. Your written program may be kept on paper electronically or even both, uh, the program has to be kept at each workplace and even made available uh, to those who request it. So let's say uh, your covered employees request your program, that's something that you have to allow them to see and access. If employees travel between workplaces during a shift, well, you have to keep that program at the primary workplace. One solution on how to fix it might be to assign responsibility for the program. So, appoint that to a coordinator to write or oversee the written program. Uh, that coordinator will have overall responsibility for developing the chemical inventory. They'll also have responsibility for organizing any safety data sheets that you have, setting up any employee training, updating files on chemicals present in the workplace, and processing requests for information from employees in OSHA. Now, of course, there's a reason that you might wanna appoint a coordinator, right? Because everything that I had just said, that's a lot of work to be done. And that's not something that maybe you uh, within your specific role have the time to do. So appointing someone to do all of that might be helpful. Of course, that coordinator, whoever you appoint should know how the program was implemented through careful documentation. And then they should be able to answer questions from OSHA, should OSHA come knocking. So again, it's just making sure that they're able to also keep up with documentation that you might already have established and then of course being able to answer any questions. The person designated for the overall program coordination should then identify staff to be responsible for particular activities such as training. So if maybe your coordinator isn't someone who's totally comfortable training, I know that's fine because some of us aren't, um, but you know, does have the information that they need, they might be able to appoint somebody who is good at training to provide that to your employees. Now, in a nutshell, the written hazard communication program is the written record of what your company has done and will do to comply with the HazCom standard. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be long or complicated. It basically tells your employees and OSHA what you're doing to comply with the standard. And it should also include a list of the hazardous chemicals known to be present in your workplace that also matches the identifier on the container label and on the safety data sheets that you have on hand. That should also include a designation of a person or multiple people who are responsible for ensuring labeling of implant containers. Again, a designation of a person or people responsible for ensuring labeling of shipped containers, if you have any. And then a description of any implant labeling systems, if you use those. Maybe a description of HASCOM training provided to employees. That's one thing that also uh, has to be included procedures to review and update label information when necessary, and then methods to use, you know, that you might use to inform employees of the hazards of non-routine tasks and how you will comply on multi-employer work sites. The written program has to be made available, again, upon request, not only to employees, uh, that's one thing that I forgot to mention earlier, but also their designated representatives and any OSHA officials that request it.
1: Okay, so let's talk about mistake number two, not including non-employees in your HazCom program. So on a multi-employer worksite, if employees of other employers are exposed to your hazardous chemicals, then your written HazCom program must also include the methods used to provide access to your SDSs, inform those employees of precautionary measures, and inform them of the labeling system used. Examples of non-employees who should be considered for your program are employees on the cleaning crew. They are in and out of your facilities and could be exposed to your hazardous chemicals. And vice versa, your employees could be exposed to the cleaning crew's chemicals. Do you have a system in place to capture their chemicals in your program? The requirements to address other employers' workers is really just an extension of your own Hazcom written program. Where there's more than one employer operating on a site, and the employees may be exposed to the chemicals used by each employer, the employer's written HASCOM program must address how on-site access to SDSs will be provided to the other employers, how such employers will be informed of needed precautionary measures, and how such employers will be informed of the on-site labeling system if it's different from the labels specified for shipped containers under the standard. An employer on a multi-employer worksite must include the methods they will use in their program to provide other employers with on-site access to SDSs. This covers each hazardous chemical to which the other employer's employees may be exposed. So therefore, one employer doesn't have to physically give the other employer the SDSs, but rather must inform the others of the location where the SDSs will be be maintained, and that could be either electronically or in paper binders or however you'd like to do that. Employers in multi-employer work sites who do not use hazardous chemicals, but whose employees are exposed to the chemicals used by other employers are required to have a program and train their employees on the hazards of the chemicals in the work areas. The written program must include a list of the hazardous chemicals known to be present in the workplace. And this inventory is basically a list of the chemicals the employer must have safety data sheets for. The list can be a part of your written program and available to employees so that they too can determine what chemicals should be included under the HazCom program in their workplace. The list can be maintained by work area or for the workplace as a whole and must be kept by an identity known as the product identifier of the chemicals. The product identifier is the identity referenced on the SDS. So this can be a common name, for instance, the product or trade name like Windex. And OSHA specifically defines product identifier as the name or number used for a hazardous chemical on a label or in the SDS. It provides a unique means by which the user can identify the chemical. The product identifier used shall permit cross references to be made among the list of hazardous chemicals required in the written HASCOM program, the label, and the SDS. And you don't have to indicate the hazards of the chemicals on your inventory, but you do need to keep it up to date. So that leads us to mistake number three that is, not creating an effective system for reviewing your chemical inventory and keeping it up to date. So Once a complete list of the potentially hazardous chemicals in the workplace has been compiled, the next step is to determine if an SDS has been received for all of them. Check files against the inventory list. Employers are required to have SDSs for all hazardous chemicals that they use. So if any are missing, contact the supplier and request one. And it's a good idea to document these requests either by keeping a copy of a letter or an email or just a note regarding telephone conversations. If an employer can't show a good faith effort to receive the SDS, OSHA can issue a citation for not having the SDS for a hazardous chemical. If an employer finds an SDS for chemicals that are not on the inventory list, figure out why, and there could be many different reasons for this. Maybe the chemical isn't used anymore, or it was missed in the survey, or the SDS might be for a non-hazardous chemical, because some manufacturers do send SDSs even for non-hazardous products, and you don't have to maintain these. Today's webcast is sponsored by the JJ Keller HazCom Chemical Management Service. With this new service, get help from JJ Keller experts to manage your chemical inventory and SDS library, ensure proper labeling and compliance. We can even review and update your written hazard communication program. And last, we'll provide regular reporting and communication on your HazCom program performance. If you'd like more information on the J.J. Keller Hazcom Chemical Safety Management Service, let us know by selecting your interest on the poll. And as a thank you, we'll email a copy of our brand new compliance brief, Top 7 Hascom Violations. And right now, we'll take a question here. Someone is asking, do we have to provide HASCOM training if we have fewer than 10 employees? And the answer is yes, um, OSHA doesn't have a number that or a minimum or maximum number of employees that you need to have to provide training. So even if you have one employee who's exposed to one hazardous chemical, you would need to provide training to that person. So keeping the inventory up to date is more of a challenge for some companies than for others. But if you're a smaller company facility or you use relatively few chemicals, maintaining your chemical list may not be much of a challenge. But if you're a larger location that has hundreds or even thousands of chemicals on the list, keeping the list current can be a significant issue. But no matter how large the size of your list, OSHA expects you to keep it current. A few tips on how to do this, include reviewing the list on a regular schedule, which should be more frequent if your chemicals change frequently, or could be done annually if you're a smaller location where chemicals stay relatively the same. And it's important to work with your procurement department or whoever is in charge of purchasing chemicals for use in your workplace, because this way you'll know what chemicals are entering your workplace. And your inventory can be simple. It could be a spreadsheet or a document or a software program, or you could go more sophisticated. Some companies use a barcoding system to help them track the use of chemicals. In this case, workers would scan a barcode on the label when they use a chemical, which helps the company know when a chemical has been used and may need to be replaced. And then this electronic information is sent to an electronic inventory, which keeps the inventory current in real time. Other systems include automated stock notifications and notifications for reorders, electronic inventory control systems, and specific chemical flagging systems. And that can be complicated and expensive. So other tips for keeping your inventory current include just being vigilant about updating the list as soon as new chemicals arrive in the workplace, knowing where the chemicals are located on site, noting the types and sizes of the chemical containers, and knowing the total amounts of chemicals stored in the workplace. So just to get you thinking, here's a partial list of the types of regulated substances that you might have in your workplace. Derek?
2: That takes us to mistake number four, not informing or even training employees on chemical hazards. And that uh, is for the violation um, that employees or employers rather are seeing out at paragraph H1. Now employees need to be trained at the time that they're assigned to work with a hazardous chemical. And the intent of this provision at um, 1910.1200 H1 is to have information prior to exposure to prevent the occurrence of any adverse Health effects or any damage to the employee's health or well-being. Now the training provisions of the HazCom standard are not satisfied solely by just giving an employee the data sheets to read. Uh, An employer's training program has to be uh, essentially a forum for explaining to employees not only the hazards of the chemicals in the work area, but also how to use the information generated in the HazCom program. And this can be accomplished in a bunch of different ways, right? So you can Train audio visually. Um, You can have classroom instruction or even any interactive videos. That should also include an opportunity for employees to ask questions to ensure that they understand the information that was presented to them. Training does not need to be conducted on each specific chemical found in your workplace, but it may be conducted by categories of hazard, such as carcinogens or sensitizers that are or may be encountered by an employee during the course of their work. The training must be comprehensible. As I had stated earlier, if the employees receive job instructions in a language other than English, then the training and information to be conveyed under the standard will also need to be conducted in that language. Additional training has to be done whenever a new physical or health hazard is introduced in the work area, not necessarily just a new chemical. We'll talk about that in a bit. Of course, any refresher training. Um, I know we get a lot of questions on that. Refresher training might be needed. Uh, In case, you know, like an employee was asked a question, let's say you just gave them a pop quiz question while they were working and they weren't able to answer, that might give you a good sign that, you know, refresher training is needed. Because, of course, after you do an initial training, let's say, right, you can't expect employees to remember all of that information for years to come. They're going to have to be refreshed on it at some point. So just another thing to keep in mind. How to fix it. Of course, you can address any training in your written program. You can provide employees information and training through whatever means are best for them. Are the, although there will, you know, always have to be some site-specific things, such as informing employees on the location and maybe the availability of your written program and safety data sheets. Any methods of presenting that material uh, meets the objectives can be used, such as classroom instruction or computer-based learning. Um, even maybe followed by a quiz. I know some employers that like to do that. Keep in mind that the training must be conducted in a manner and language that employees can understand. As I would mentioned, always consider the education and even the technical background of the employees to ensure that they completely understand the information being given to them. For example, if employees have low literacy, you may consider verbal instruction versus reading documents. In a letter of interpretation, even OSHA says that information and training provided to employees should allow them to perform their work in a safe and helpful manner that complies With OSHA's requirements. It's not enough to just complete training, but training has to be effective. And if training is inadequate and employees don't necessarily understand it, OSHA will issue some citations and inspectors will ask employees questions. And if the employees cannot respond properly, even if they have been through documented training, OSHA can certainly cite you. Now we covered some definitions earlier. Here we're talking about exposure or exposed, and that generally means that an employee is subjected to a hazardous chemical in the course of their job performance or through any route of entry, including inhalation, ingestion, uh, even skin contact, so touching the chemical itself or absorption. Prior to the initial job assignment, each employee who has exposure risk to hazardous chemicals has to be provided information and training. Additional training must be done whenever a new physical or health hazard is introduced, I had mentioned earlier. OSHA defines an employee as any worker who may be exposed to hazardous chemicals under normal operating conditions. And I wanted to touch on this one just because I had mentioned it a lot earlier. When I say normal operating conditions, I mean those which employees encounter performing their job duties in their assigned work areas, even. So for example, if the receptionist in a facility receives and delivers a telephone message for someone in a different work area where hazardous chemicals are present, this doesn't mean that the receptionist would have to be covered by the rule, by virtue of you know, the one ex- potential exposure from delivering the message. However, if that you know receptionist performance entails walking through the production area every day and thus being potentially exposed during the performance of regular duties, that job would be covered under the standard. Additionally, a housekeeping staff member who is expected to handle cleanup of hazardous substances such as mercury from a broken thermometer, that would require training as well. And as I stated earlier, information and training has to be done either by individual chemical or by categories of hazards, such as flammability or even carcinogenicity. If there are only a few chemicals in the workplace, then an employer may want to discuss each one individually. Now, when OSHA conducts inspections, they often ask employees whether they know the locations of the SDSs. And I'm only mentioning this because I know a lot of folks kind of get worried when they hear that an OSHA inspector is coming and that their employees might be questioned. Here are some things that they might ask. They might ask if they can also list the health effects of a chemical that they work with. Um, So this is where maybe having employees study the SDS. Um, although they should be looking at the SDS anyway before they work with a chemical, uh, but maybe having them do some additional studying on that chemical to really know what they're working with specifically might be, you know, helpful. Uh, OSHA might also ask them what to do in the event of an emergency. So if a chemical is spilled or something like that happens in the workplace, do your employees know what to do if that happens? OSHA has issued citations to employers when employees couldn't respond properly to interview questions. So it has happened even though in some cases the employees have been through documented training, OSHA consistently holds that training has to be effective, not simply completed. And that's that area that I was talking about earlier where um, a lot of folks provide quizzes at the end of their training sessions just to see what the employee learned. Even weeks after I've heard of quizzes being provided as like a pop quiz, just to ensure that that information was learned. Again, that's just a good way to tell whether or not the training that you provided was truly effective. Now on the flip side, just as an example, if a newly introduced solvent is a suspect carcinogen in your workplace and there's never been a carcinogenic hazard in the workplace, new training for that might be required. I'm sorry, excuse me. It's not necessary that the employer retrain each new hire if that employee has received prior training by a past employer, an employee union, or any other entity. So just keep that in mind. General information might need to be provided such as the rudiments of the HAZCOM standard That could be expected to remain with an employee from one position to another. The employer, however, maintains the responsibility to ensure that their employees are adequately trained and are equipped with the knowledge and information necessary to do their job safely, right? It's likely that additional training will be needed since employees must know the specifics of their new employer's program, such as where SDSs are located, Um, details of the employer's implant labeling system and the hazards of new chemicals to which they will be exposed. I mean, temp workers are probably a good one to touch on because temp workers are usually um, new employees all throughout the year. Um, They might even be considered similar as like new hires. So just a few things to keep in mind as well. Now, in general, staffing agency has to take care of general training requirements for temp employees, training employees on the type of chemicals they're likely to encounter, doing the type of work they're likely to be asked to do. Staffing agencies will also train them on general PPE, including how to don and doff, and also how to read safety data sheets and how to read labels. The host employer is the one responsible for the site-specific hazards, the particular chemicals the temporary employees will be exposed to, and the particular hazards of the job. Now, this includes training on what to do in an emergency and whether to clean up spills, where to find the SDSs and any in-house labeling system. So again, this might be good to jot down in case you're wondering what your responsibilities are versus what a staffing agency's responsibilities are. Now, in a temporary worker initiative bulletin, I will add regarding temporary workers for HazCom, OSHA says that the host employer holds the primary responsibility for providing site-specific hazard communication information and even training on chemical hazards in the workplace to temporary employees. Since, and I mean generally, because it uses and produces the hazardous chemicals and creates the controls uh, and and work processes that they expect employees to conduct. Now, the host employer is therefore best suited to inform employees of the chemical hazards specific to the workplace environment through site-specific training.
1: Okay, and if you have employees who do special non-routine tasks that may may expose them to hazardous chemicals, such as doing a tank cleanout, then you need to inform them about those chemicals' hazards, and you also should inform them about how to control exposure and what to do in an emergency. This also means evaluating the hazards of these tasks and providing appropriate controls, including personal protective equipment and any additional training as required. And examples of special tasks that may expose employees to hazardous chemicals include cleaning of reactor vessels. And finally, you need to inform employees of the hazards associated with chemicals contained in unlabeled pipes in their work areas. And that brings us to mistake number five, which is not maintaining copies of SDSs. So before we discuss how to fix this one, let's spend a little time going over the requirements for SDSs including maintaining copies of the SDSs for every hazardous chemical, making the SDSs available and accessible to employees, and in training employees on how to read them. So unless you're producing hazardous chemicals, you only need to make sure that the safety data sheet is received with the first shipment of a new type of chemical or when that chemical has been reformulated. You need to train your employees how to read the SDS, where to find the SDS, when they should consult it, and of course, to understand it. The role of an SDS is to provide detailed information on each hazardous chemical, including its potential hazardous effects, its physical and chemical characteristics, and recommendations for appropriate protective measures. Keep a master SDS file and check in each SDS, particularly noting the revision date. If an STS is an update of a sheet, send out a copy to each department that uses that chemical so they can update their files as well. And if an SDS is for a new chemical, send copies to each department that will use it. Also, you'll want to monitor the SDSs within each department. Sheets get torn out or smudged and need to be replaced. Have a cover sheet listing what SDSs are in the file, along with the revision number. A supervisor can then weekly or monthly check quickly to see if all the SDSs are there and readable. And you can replace missing SDSs immediately employers may discard a superseded SDS for a mixture if the new SDS includes the same hazardous chemicals as the original formulation. If the formulation is different, then you will have to keep either both of the SDSs or the three pieces of information required by a different regulation, 1910-1020, for at least 30 years. Although you may no longer use a specific chemical in your facility, OSHA states that you have to keep some record of employee exposure to a chemical. SDSs are exposure records. However, you don't need to retain paper or electronic copies of old SDSs as long as you have a record of employee exposure to the products that were used, such as the identity, substance, agent, when it was used, and you retain that record for 30 years. And the SDSs could be part of that record. And again, these regulations can be found at 1910, 1020, and paragraph D. In order to ensure that an employer has a current SDS for each chemical and that employee access is provided, OSHA looks at the following types of information in your written program. Note number three on this list. What do you do if you didn't receive an SDS and you should have? You're entitled to receive an SDS for each chemical product that you purchase, and if you don't receive it, you should request it from the manufacturer or your distributor. If you receive one that's obviously inadequate, for example, maybe it has blank spaces that aren't completed, you'll need to request an appropriately completed one. If your request for an SDS or a corrected SDS goes unanswered within a reasonable amount of time, and OSHA suggests about 30 days for this, then you should contact your local OSHA area office for assistance in obtaining the SDS. The SDS contains all the elements you see on the slide, and there are 16 sections here. The important areas for employees to understand are the sections on what the health effects of exposure to the chemical could be. What should they watch out for? Should they suspect they've been exposed to a chemical if they have difficulty breathing or if they get a rash? Employees will learn from the SDS if the chemical requires special precautions, such as not exposing it to water or heat, or whether it can handle rough treatment. Knowing the firefighting measures is important for knowing whether a standard portable fire extinguisher will work to put out a fire involving the chemical, or if you need a certain type of extinguisher. One reason OSHA requires SDSs to be readily available and accessible to employees is so they can quickly find emergency and first aid procedures for exposures to the chemical. So for example, do they need to get the employee medical attention as soon as possible? Do they have to flush their eyes or skin for a certain certain amount of time? Or maybe is washing with soap and water appropriate? Knowing the recommended spill containment methods can help employees avoid injury when there has been a spill or release. Can they simply soak up or sweep up a spill or do they need to apply a neutralizing agent first? Handling and storage is important to help employees know when they should avoid using the chemical with other chemicals. For instance, an SDS for a cleaner containing bleach will caution against using the cleaner with ammonia. The SDS will contain information on when to wear PPE and what type of PPE is appropriate. The physical and chemical properties will tell you if the chemical is a liquid, gas, or solid, what color it is, what it smells like, maybe it's odorless, its pH value, flammability, etc. And this kind of thing is important to know to see if the chemical is also covered by other OSHA standards, such as the flammable liquid standard at 1910-106. Section 10 lists the stability and reactivity. For instance, what happens if you drop a box of the chemical or if it's exposed to air or water. And note that the information found in sections 12 through 15 can be very valuable, especially when it comes time to dispose of the hazardous chemical. But OSHA does not enforce these sections. Other agencies, such as the Department of Transportation, regulate the information required to be in these sections. These sections will also let you know if the chemical falls under the reporting requirements for EPA reporting programs, such as the toxics release inventory. If, under normal conditions of use, employees do not open sealed containers of hazardous chemicals, such as in warehousing or retail sales, the distributor need only maintain the STSs that are sent with incoming shipments. If an employee requests an SDS and it is not available, the distributor must contact the manufacturer and request one. So the primary difference here is that the warehouse or hardware store does not have to maintain a complete file of data sheets. This simplifies the paperwork for operations where hundreds of different chemicals pass through but are never opened or worked with. Derek?
2: Thanks, Rachel. Mistake number six, not making safety data sheets readily accessible. And I'll go through that in just a second. This is another area where OSHA regularly cites employers. It's not enough to just have and keep the SDS, but they also have to be made available to employees. And this means that employees should not have to go through too many steps to access them. Uh, Meaning, you know, they have to be able to bypass any barriers easily. Um, There shouldn't be any barriers, but they have to, be able to have access to those safety data sheets um, right away. So some factors you might want to consider are, must the employee ask a supervisor or other management representative for the SDS? Can the employee access the SDS during each work shift and in each work area? Have employees been trained on how to access SDSs and where they're kept? And do employees know, know who they can go to if they have any questions about an SDS? Again, so just making sure that you minimize any barriers that you might have between the employee and the safety data sheet uh, for the chemical in which they're working with uh, is a good idea. Now, if the employer is maintaining the SDS on a company website, or even within an offsite web-based SDS service provider that provides them electronically, they have to ensure that all employees have adequate access with no restrictions there's a backup procedure or system in place in case the system is not functioning. Now, that's a big one. We all know how awesome technology can be, but it is also, without us knowing when that time is going to be, one of the worst things on earth. And sometimes systems crash. There has to be a backup procedure in place. So whether or not you, know, you keep hard copies somewhere else or keep them on a system that doesn't you know require internet access, things like that. The employees must be trained on how to access the SDS both on the computer and the backup system as well. There's a procedure or a backup in place to ensure that employees can receive a hard copy. So like I said, if there's a hard copy that's around in case of a crash or something like that, that'd be great. In the event of a medical emergency, hard copy SDSs must be immediately available to medical personnel. Specifically, there must be an adequate backup system for rapid access to those SDSs as well in case there's a failure. So as long as employees can get to the information when they need it, any approach may be used to provide access to SDSs. Uh, We get that question a lot, if they can be provided in, you know, hard copy or online, and the truth is both. But again, just making sure that employees have access to those. Now some employers like to keep the SDSs in a binder. Or in a central location or have a binder for each work area such as a maintenance, manufacturing, even at a construction site a binder might be kept in like a job trailer. Other employers, particularly in workplaces with large number of chemicals, provide access electronically. So if access to SDSs is provided electronically, there has to be an adequate backup system in place like I mentioned. For computerized data sheets, The employees or key employees must know how to retrieve the data sheets, and this may require training in basic computer skills as well as the software program used for the SDS. When employees don't understand how to use the equipment, the SDS is considered not readily accessible. And when workers must also travel between workplaces during a work shift, SDSs have to be made uh, available and be kept at a primary workplace facility. OSHA's has come standard by adopting portions of the globally harmonized system of classification and labeling of chemicals or their GHS, requires the use of GHS labels. Some of you have may have seen these around, uh, but they're essentially container labels that must have six specific label elements. And the labeling element most cited by OSHA is the product identifier. And this could mean that the employer is just missing the product identifier altogether or may have incorrect information displayed. Some GHS label elements have been standardized, identical with no variation and are directly related to chemical hazard class and category. Now the standardized label elements included in OSHA's labeling requirements, which are based on the chemical hazard class and category, will include pictograms, any signal words, a hazard statement, and then a precautionary statement. And that's pretty generic um, and uniform. All assigned hazard and precautionary statements must appear on the label. Now. I should say that neither OSHA nor the GHS specifies a label format or size, saying only that the product identifier, pictogram, signal word and hazard statement should be located together. And of course you have to train employees on how they can use the information on the label to safely work with and store material. Now the product identifier must be on the label if ties to the label you know, to chemical SDSs, which contains more extensive information. The pictogram is a symbol plus other graphic elements, such as like a border, a background pattern, or color that is intended to convey specific information about the hazards of a chemical. Each pictogram consists usually of a different symbol on a white background within a red square frame set on a point. So it kind of just looks like a red diamond. The signal word is a single word used to indicate the relative level of severity of hazard and then alert the workers to a potential hazard on the label. Now, the signal word also uses our danger and warning. So those, those are some safe uses. Danger is used for the more severe hazards, while warning is used for less severe hazards. The hazard statement is a statement that describes the nature of the hazards of a chemical, including where appropriate, the degree of the hazard. And the precautionary statement is a phrase that describes recommended measures to be taken to minimize or prevent adverse effects resulting from exposure or even like improper storage or handling of a hazardous chemical. So when the container is shipped, the label also must include the name, the address, and the telephone number of the chemical manufacturer, importer, or other responsible party. Now all ship containers of hazardous chemicals have to be labeled with the required elements. If you choose to use implant or in-house labels on containers of hazardous chemicals, you're not required to include the name, address, and phone number of the responsible party. Although the in-house label can be just the product identifier in words, pictures, or symbols that convey the general hazard information. And that is in regards specific to the physical and health hazards of the hazardous chemical. And this must be supported by specific hazard information in your Hazcon program. Now, the list on the slide will help you to ensure that you're in compliance with labeling provisions of the standard. Now, the GHS style label will have pictograms, a black symbol inside of a red diamond border for in-house labeling. OSHA says that the border may be black Since you will be working with these labels, it's important that that you become familiar with the pictograms. Now, each pictogram has a specific meaning, conveying health, uh, physical, environmental hazard information for a chemicals hazard class and category. The GHS uses nine different pictograms. However, OSHA only enforces the use of eight of them. Since OSHA does not have any authority over environmental issues, the agency can't necessarily require the use of, let's say, like an environmental pictogram. Now, If you choose to use pictograms that appear in the HASCOM rules Appendix C on the workplace or implant labels, as I said, these pictograms may have a black border. You may also use additional instructional symbols that are not included in OSHA's HASCOM pictograms on the workplace labels. An example of an instructional pictogram is a person with goggles. The noting that the goggles must be worn while handling the given chemical, including both types of pictograms on workplace labels is acceptable. The same is true if the employer wants to list environmental pictograms or PPE pictograms even from the HMIS labeling system to identify any protective measures for those handling the chemical.
1: Finally, let's talk about mistake number eight. So while employers are never required under the HASCOM standard to relabel already properly labeled containers, there are several situations in which relabeling may be needed. One, if the received quantity of a chemical is broken down into smaller containers, employers need to label these containers if not intended for immediate use. Two, labels that fall off or become unreadable must be replaced. And three, relabeling incoming containers for a company-wide uniform labeling system. A company system makes training easier because the employer only needs to explain one system of labels. OSHA recommends that if using an implant labeling system for uniformity, allow the incoming container labels to remain on the original containers rather than removing them when implant labels are added. Although an employer may choose to provide additional information, OSHA's requirements are limited to that required to convey the hazards and precautions to users. Other data may be included on the SDS or covered during additional training. In evaluating the effectiveness of labels, OSHA has found that the more detail it appears in a label, the less likely it is that users will read and act on the information. When an employee fills a portable container with a chemical from a labeled container and that same employee uses the substance within one work shift, OSHA does not require the temporary use container to be labeled. However, problems arise when the shift ends and there is material left in the portable container or if another employee needs to use the container or substance. Many employers require labeling of portable containers to avoid issues such as this. The employer is not required to label portable containers into which hazardous chemicals are transferred from labeled containers that are intended only for the immediate use of the person who performs the transfer. An immediate use means that the hazardous chemical will be under the control of and used only by the person who transfers it from the labeled container and only within the work shift in which it is transferred. Before the chemical can be passed along to another employee on another shift, the container must be properly labeled. Quality control samples taken in a plant must be labeled, tagged, or marked unless the person taking the sample is also going to be performing the analysis as the sample would then fall under the portable container exemption. OSHA allows employers to provide the required label information in ways other than simply attaching it directly to each small container. OSHA will consider alternative labeling provisions for. For containers which are of unusual shape or proportion and do not easily accommodate a label. While the HasCom standard requires shipped containers to conform to the GHS style labeling system, OSHA still allows employers to use their own workplace labeling systems, for example, HMIS-3 and NFPA, for in-house usage. If you do choose to use an alternative labeling system, you must ensure that the system is updated as necessary so that it does not conflict with the GHS style labeling and classification. So, for example, under the HazCom standard, labels of chemicals that present specific target organ toxicity hazards must display the health hazard symbol. The skull and crossbones symbol is used only for certain acute toxicity hazards. If an in-house label used the skull and crossbones symbol for a specific target organ toxin, it would be in conflict with the HazCom standard. OSHA says that employers who use general non-specific implant labeling systems such as HMIS or NFPA must ensure through their HazCom program that their employees can correlate the visual warning on the implant container with the applicable con- chemical and its appropriate hazard warnings. The employer must ensure that workplace labels or other forms of warning are legible, in English, and prominently displayed on the container or readily available in the work area throughout each work shift. The label format or layout is not specified by OSHA, except to require that the pictograms, signal word, and hazard statements should be located together in the same field of view. And labels must be legible without the use of any aid except corrective lenses if the person reading the label normally has to wear glasses. If the label is not legible, it's out of compliance.
2: So danger and warning are the only signal words allowed. The use of any other signal type word is not in compliance. Only one signal word is usually allowed on the label. See Appendix C of the standard if you're wondering uh, any more about that. Toxic air emissions may be a byproduct of a process or procedure in a facility. Areas that often get overlooked involve potentially toxic chemicals produced from welding operations, gasoline-powered forklift vehicles, power tools even with internal combustion motors, and then commercial trucks at the loading dock. Employee exposure to any air emissions that are being created in the facility must be accounted for, and you may need to contact the supplier of your welding rods to help in tracking down the appropriate safety data sheet. However, I should mention that safety data sheets do not have to be provided for vehicles such as lift trucks, tractors, or automobiles, but SDSs are required for the gasoline and other fuels used by vehicles. Employees should be aware of the potential for exposure to carbon monoxide and any other associated physical hazards of petroleum fuel products, such as fire or even an explosion. And with that, we've reached the end of our presentation for today. Really if you pay attention to the major sections of HAZCOM, the written programs and chemical inventory, safety data sheets, labeling, and providing information and training to employees, you'll be in pretty good shape. I think we have a little bit of time for maybe one question, but I wanted to first address one that came in about our new HAZCOM safety management service. This service provides support and guidance for these core areas of your HazCom program. So again, if you'd like more information on the JJ Keller HazCom Chemical Safety Management Service, please let us know by selecting your interest in the poll. And then even as a thank you, we'll copy uh, an email uh, out to you guys of our compliance brief on the top seven HazCom violations. We know that many of you are busy and you could have spent time elsewhere, but chose to be with us today. And uh, we truly appreciate that.
0: Well, thank you so much, Derek, and thank you, Rachel, for sharing your insights with us today on this topic. Uh, folks, before we start the q and uh, I want to let everyone know about the evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete. Uh, the survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. Your input is really important to us because it does help us to improve our future webcasts. And Rachel and Derek, we've had some great questions come through. Let me get to some of those right now. Uh, Rachel, I'll start with you. Uh, First question for you, how often do you need to update uh, your chemical inventory for your location?
1: That's a good question. Um, OSHA doesn't have a set time frame for that. So basically, you know, if you don't, if your chemicals don't change very often, that might be something you might do, you know, once a month or once a year, depending on the frequency. But if you do have a lot of chemical changes, that might be something you do more often. But there really is no regulatorily set schedule for that.
0: Okay, great. And Derek, next question is for you. Um, An interesting question here. Uh, Is it recommended to have employees that are unable to read handling hazardous materials?
2: Um, I'd argue that in some cases that might be just as dangerous as having untrained employees, Um, specifically because I had mentioned earlier uh, within the webcast that employees need to be trained in a language that they understand. They also need to be able to work with the materials and chemicals that they have in language that they understand, right? Because some of these chemicals, and I mean all of them, should have a label on them with language that they understand specifically. And if they don't, or if the employee just doesn't know how to read, then I'd say that that's just as dangerous as having untrained employees in the workplace. So it might be something that you, and I, I honestly would recommend that it's, that's something that you should reevaluate to see if there's something uh, that you can do there to, to work through that.
0: Okay, great. Thank you for that advice. Uh, Rachel, one of our uh, attendees today says, um, I've been out of safety for a while. Could you explain the difference between an SDS and an MSDS and what are the reasons or the implications of the change?
1: Sure. Um, in I think the MSDS was a format that was used prior to 2012 when the Hascom standard adopted the third edition of the GHS format. Um, addition uh, and that was when they switched to the 16 format safety data sheet. And if you do have an MSDS for chemicals that you received prior to that time, that is still in compliance. However, if you receive an SDS for that same chemical, then you can get rid of that MSDS and retain the newer SDS for that. But going forward, manufacturers should only be um, creating SDSs, not MSDSs at this point.
0: Okay, excellent. Um, Derek, next question uh, for you. Uh, does all HASCOM education need to be documented on paper? Um, and this this uh, attendee asks, uh, will an OSHA inspector believe HASCOM education has happened if there's not an official record of it? Yeah, and that's a good question. Um, honestly, best practice
2: is to document it just because I don't believe in Rachel uh, please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe that OSHA actually requires anywhere within the employee information and training part of the standard. I think at, at 1910.1200 paragraph each, um, I don't believe that documentation is something that is specifically required, the documentation of training. Um, but again, that's where the best practice of keeping that documentation will come in handy uh, because the OSHA inspector, whether or not you have the documentation, will know whether or not the employees are trained simply because they're going to ask questions I had mentioned earlier. And if they ask certain questions and employees aren't answering them correctly, um, even if they went through, like I said, documented training, um, you know, on hand, then I don't have reason to believe that, uh, that, you know, an ocean inspector might say, well, you know, um, we don't believe that your employees were trained. And even if they were, and you know that, I know that can be frustrating, um, but it's definitely something that you might want to keep handy uh, as a best practice. Though, again, it's not required anywhere specifically within the standard.
0: Okay, excellent. Uh, looks like we have time for one more question. Rachel, uh, last one for you. Um, when you discuss the readily accessible SDSs to employees, is a digital format that can be retrieved from the company network acceptable?
1: Uh, yes, that you can um, have them stored electronically as long as you know, employees have access to that if they would need a password or if they certainly would need training on how to get into that system and use it and they would have to have access through, right through the password or in their, and in their work area so they could access that. But that is acceptable to do that electronically.
0: Okay, great. Well, thank you both. Folks, we've unfortunately run out of time today. We wanna thank you all for attending our presentation and we would appreciate you taking some time today to share your feedback via our survey. A special thank you today goes out to our terrific terrific presenters, Rachel Krubsack and Derek Plowden and the team from our sponsor at JJ Keller. This ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. Take care, everyone, and have a safe day.